You're listening to a sermon on the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Stick around after the message for more information about Mission Ridge. Thanks for tuning in. So let's get going here. We are starting a new series in Genesis. Um, We're going to go for the next eight weeks. Runs up till Lent, if I remember correctly. Uh, and we're going to cover the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Now, don't worry. Don't worry, Ruth. We're going to cover the rest of the book of Genesis after Lent, and we're going to keep going through this through the year. We're going to break it up into a couple of chunks, because in case you haven't noticed, the book of Genesis is a really big, long book. It's like 50, 52 chapters, something like that. Um, when I make it to the end of it, I'll let you know. <laughs> anyway, uh, so we're going to cover this first 11 chapters, though, and it, this fits really nicely because the first 11 chapters is kind of the prologue, if you, if you want to think of it that way. That's an okay way to think about it, because um, the first 11 chapters are creation up until right before we meet Abraham, and then in chapter 12, we meet Abraham, and uh, then the story continues in a slightly different um, goes through a little bit of a genre shift um, in chapter 12. So we're going to cover these first 11 chapters here, the prologue of Genesis. And, and we need to understand the context of how this, this prologue works. Uh, we need to understand who it was written to, um, who it was written by maybe. Um, we need to understand the, the style of literature that it is. Um, so what we're going to do today is just kind of an intro. We're not going to actually get into Genesis until next week when Rob starts with Genesis 1. That's the, the beginning, in the beginning. <laughs> I'm going to use that joke so many times. But because uh, the beginning is a good place to start. But before the beginning, we need to talk about what's going to happen. So the literature style of Genesis... Let me start with this. It's an Eastern book. We've talked about this Eastern versus Western mindset before. There was a, the Bible Basics series last, I think it was about a year ago, um, where we talked about this a little bit. And we've talked about this in a couple of our other studies where we've looked at the difference between how Eastern people look at things and view the world, the lens that they view the world through versus the Western people like us, um, Greek thinking and stuff like that, and how they view the world. So this is essential for understanding Genesis. We have to understand this this perspective shift of Eastern versus Western. I'm not going to talk about it too much today because we can go back and look at the the sermon from last year, or you can talk to me and Rob, and we have a ton of really great materials on this difference in Eastern versus Western, if this is something you're interested in. But we need to understand this main concept of it's just a slightly different perspective shift. So I want you to imagine with me a Uh, I want you to imagine a little shack, a little cabin out in the woods, right? And this cabin has two windows. One is on the eastern side of the building, and one is on the western side of the building. That's a little on the nose. Obviously, one of them is going to be the western perspective, and one's going to be the eastern perspective. Now, if you're looking in from the western side, let's say Jack's over on the western side of the building, and he's looking into this shack, and he's going to describe to me what he sees in this shack, and let's say, there's a, let's say there's a really big, I don't know, some sort of big object that's in this shack. And Jack is looking in from the western side of the building, and he's going to describe what he sees. Okay? But he's only seeing it from that one angle. And if, you're, if he's looking in through this window, like if I'm looking in through the window right there of Rob's office, I can't see what's directly on the other side of the wall. Like I just can't physically see it. It's not that it isn't there, it's just I can't see it. It's 
blocked from my perspective. Now, Kevin is on the other side of the shack, and he's looking in through the eastern side of the building, right? And he can see the object from the other side, and it's going to look a little different. So if they both describe to me what they see, and then I drew a picture, the pictures are going to look a little different. The object is the same. We're still talking about the same thing. It's just a perspective shift, okay? So this is, this is how I want us to kind of think about this perspective shift of how an Eastern mindset looks at things. And as we go through Genesis, as we go through these stories, creation, Noah, Cain and Abel, the fall, all of this stuff, Babel, it's all going to be slightly different that we want to put ourselves into an Eastern mindset, okay? Just to understand it a little bit better because it is an Eastern book. Okay, so now let's talk about genre, which for me, growing up, I never thought of, like, I was like, the Bible, well, it's in the religious genre, all right, nailed it. Well, no, because within the Bible, there's different genres of writing. You've got prophetic, apocalyptic, you've got allegory. Um, now, Genesis contains a lot of poetry. When I say Genesis, I'm talking first 11 chapters, just for simplicity's sake. So Genesis chapters 1 through 11 contains a lot of poetry. For example, Genesis 1. It's, most scholars are going to call it an ancient Mesopotamian poem. They're going to agree on that. Pretty pretty wide consensus. It's poetry. Uh, Genesis 1 through 11 contains a lot of allegory. Now, if you're not familiar with the term allegory, allegory is a story, poem, or a picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning. This is something we'd talk about in English back in the day. Uh, Imagine, say, like uh, the Book of Virtues, right? You take a a parable or the Book of Virtues, and and you look at those stories. They're going to have hidden meanings inside of the stories, okay? So, and this, this, might be a little, this might be a little different from how we're used to hearing the book of Genesis presented in the Western church. Like, this, is, this was different for me the first time I heard it, and I was like, huh? Shaking, shaking the foundations of my life, just like that. Uh, made that noise, too. Uh, nonetheless, some things that if we're, if we're looking at allegory and we're looking at poems, some things that we're going to want to look for because don't just take my word, like, as we're going through this, we're going to pick out some things that are going to point out, like, oh, no, this is poetry, this is allegory. Okay, there's going to be repeated themes. As we go through Genesis, there's all sorts of repeated themes. We're going to see this theme of not trusting. We're going to see themes of rest. That's going to come up. Like, okay, so, fun little side note, I hate spoilers. Uh, so I completely went media blackout watching Star Wars. I didn't watch any of the trailers. I didn't even look at the poster because I wanted to avoid spoilers so much. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a couple of spoilers today. We're not going to just like, oh, surprise, here's the point of the story. No, we're going to look for this, and I'm going to tell you what to be looking for because it's way easier because we're all Western, and spoilers make it easier for us. So even though it breaks my heart to not just have big gotcha moments in this series, we're going to point out some things so that it's helpful for us to be looking for them, okay? So repeated themes, trusting, not trusting, uh, rest. There's going to be all sorts of themes like this that are going to keep popping up. I'm not going to give them all to you because, well, we're going to read the stories and we'll get them out of there. But be looking for these themes. We're going to see patterns. Specifically in Genesis 1 next week when Rob's talking about this, we're going to see patterns of threes. We're going to see patterns of sevens and tens. And these repeated like, and then there was evening and there was morning the third day, right? There's this repeated cadence that kind of comes out in this. And we're going to see this a couple of different times in Genesis where we see these patterns and these repeated words and phrases, okay? These are things that are going to help us find the point 
that God is trying to get across to us with these stories. And then last but not least, we're going to see a lot of chiasms. We've talked about chiasms before. This is the, the literary tool of, of, of telling a pattern, A, B, C, D, C, B, A, right? Maybe you, you do a, a backwards chiasm or it's reflected. And it's this literary tool that points to this golden nugget in the middle, right? It points us to this, this hidden treasure, if you will. And we're going to see a ton of chiasms. Uh, here's a little spoiler. Genesis 1 contains two different types of chiasms going on at the same time. I'm going to let Rob explain that next week. But, oh man, it is good. It's not an easy chiasm, but that's where God starts. So, all right, jump into the deep end. Okay, so ancient poetry, allegory, Genesis is thick and heavy with this stuff. Now, what this means is Genesis is not a scientific textbook. Okay? We, in the Western culture, we definitely like our... Our science, our textbooks, our guides, our, you know, if I want to build an engine, I don't want an allegorical story about how to build an engine. That's not going to turn out well for me. I want specific instructions on how to, this piece goes here, and then this piece, and then this piece. When I'm building Legos, I don't want an allegory telling me how to make the X-Wing. I want the instructions, right? We like our textbooks in the West. That's how we think. We grew up with it. This is how we do things. And it's good. It's not a bad thing. This is why Dave can work on our teeth. This is why we have modern medicine. Thank you, Western world. But once again, we need a little bit of a perspective shift to understand an Eastern book like Genesis. Now, this doesn't mean, when I say that it's not a scientific textbook, this does not mean that your preferred stance on creation is not right or, or is right or wrong. Like, that's not what this is saying, okay? Whether it's you know, literal seven-day creation or theistic evolution or anywhere on the spectrum, doesn't matter. Like, that's, that's all good. That's all fine. It's over here in the Western. Like, we can think about that, and we can debate it, and we can talk about it, and we can prove it, and it's all good. Understanding Genesis from an Eastern perspective does not include that. We don't need to worry about that as much, okay? But it's not a scientific textbook. Doesn't, what it does mean when we, we, our natural inclination as Westerners is going to be, be to read Genesis and we're going to miss the point because we're looking for, well, that doesn't make any sense, and the order of these doesn't line up, and, and then Genesis 2 comes in, and, and it falls somewhere in day 3, maybe, of Genesis 1, and we try to cram a square peg into a round hole, and we miss the point a lot of times. I did that for years. I'm still doing that. I still want to, like, make it fit and work out, right? But this, is, this isn't how it works. So what is the point of the story, then, you might be asking? That's the next logical question. What's the point of the story then if it's not this historic or, you know, scientific textbook? All right. Well, to understand the point of the story, we got to understand who is hearing the story, which leads us to the next part of this sermon. We're going to talk about Sinai, okay? Church tradition holds that Moses is the author of Genesis. Now, I say author in quotes here, okay? There's a lot of debate there's a lot of debate. You can jump down the rabbit hole of Google like I did this last couple of weeks, trying to figure out like, all right, what are all of these theological stances on? Did Moses author it? Did he write it? Did he, write, did he not write it? During the 19th and 20th centuries, like they threw that out and it wasn't Moses. And then, and then they threw that back out and it was Moses again. And it's like Constantinople versus Istanbul is flipping back and forth. And here's, here's my thoughts on it real quick. Um, he's credited as bringing down the uh, bringing it down off the mountain to present to the people, okay? Um, 
not only is he credited by a lot of scholars, he's credited by Jesus. So if Jesus says that Moses brought down the law, I'm okay with that. I think we can all agree, like, this is okay. If Jesus says this is how it went down, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with that. Like, you're welcome to join me in this. Like, if Jesus says it's, that's the way it is, I'm going to go with that. Um, now, whether or not he actually wrote it down, I don't know. Logically, to me, that doesn't make a lot of sense. We'll talk about that in footnotes this week a little bit. Um, we'll hash out some of the problems with that, and you can wrestle with that if you want. Or you can just be like, Jesus said so, so that's the way it is. That's totally fine on this one. Um, but we'll talk about that in footnotes a little bit more. <clears throat> so we have the author, the author. God gives this to Moses. Moses brings it down to the people. Now, what's going on at Sinai? We've talked about Sinai a couple of times. I remember talking about it. Uh, Marty talked about it in reference to Pentecost. And I think, Rob, we talked about Jewish weddings a couple weeks ago, maybe even in Advent, if I remember correctly, or we talked about talking about it. But nonetheless, what is going on at Sinai is there's this Jewish wedding imagery going on, okay? God is kind of marrying his people. He's binding himself to his people, okay? Uh, so we're going to think of Sinai as a wedding. Now, in Numbers 10, uh, chapter 11, we get this, this, little, this little verse that tells us they were at Sinai, uh, Numbers 10, chapter 11, or chapter 10, verse 11, if you're writing that down. Um, it's, it tells us that they're at Sinai for two years, and then they spend the next 38 or whatever out wandering. And that's kind of the honeymoon, is this wandering phase, which I was going to make a really hilarious joke about Josh and Shanoa needing a 40-year honeymoon. But they're not even here, so they must be honeymooning. So that's a thing. Uh, but um, nonetheless, so that you got this wedding imagery. This, this covenant is being made at Sinai with, uh, between God and his people. So... When we're thinking of this as God coming down, what, what do you, well, one, back up a little bit, Jewish weddings slightly different from our current Western weddings, right? Um, I don't know, probably most of you that are married went through some sort of dating or courtship phase, and then there was an engagement period, and during all of this, you knew the person, like, Dave, you probably knew Ruth while you were dating, right? It wasn't an arranged marriage. Okay, good. All right. Perfect. That works out then. All right. So Dave met Ruth and then Dave and Ruth date for a while and then they get engaged, right? How, how am I doing? Okay. They got engaged and they were engaged for a certain amount of time. Probably, I don't know, a couple months maybe? Short? Long? Short? Short. short. Ooh. Like Josh and Shanoa short? Because that was like a week and a half. Not that short. Okay. <laughs> All right. Whew. They still got the record. All right. Killing it. Um, so anyway, so engagement period though, and you still knew each other and then, then you got married. Right? So you've got this built-up history before the actual marriage. Now, Jewish weddings, not necessarily like that. They come from a culture that has arranged marriages. So maybe the dads decide, like, all right, your son, my daughter, we haggle, share some goats. You know, I get a goat, you get a cow, whatever. Our, our families now are going to be wed, and these two are going to get married. They might not ever even have met before the wedding day. Could have. Could have happened. Like, maybe they, the, 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 the son is going to be part of this discussion process and gets to see the, the daughter, but maybe not. And maybe for, on the wedding day is the first time they're seeing each other. Which for me, I was thinking about this last night, I was like, that sounds ridiculously awkward. Like, especially because part of the Jewish wedding is like, during the wedding, the couple goes off 
and just kind of disappears for a while to make sure that something happens and they consummate things. And then they come back and everybody's like, I don't know, they say something. <laughs> Mazel tov, is that what they say there? I don't know. There's smashing glasses or whatever. Like that sounds super awkward. I don't know. I'm not married, but maybe that sounds a little awkward to me. I don't know. You do with that what you will. So Jewish weddings, a little different, right? So there's this break-in period, and then they give them a year-long honeymoon, actually, because they need to get to know each other now, which is another one like Josh and Chanel. Why aren't they here today? So good. So good. I'm going to give them a hard time. Nonetheless, so God, this honeymoon period, they're getting to know their groom. These people that just came out of Egypt are getting to know this God that just liberated them, that they are entering into this relationship with. And this is when Moses brings down Genesis to them. This is when they are hearing the story of who God is to them. Okay? Moses brings this down and presents this story to them. Now, they might have heard these stories, you know, they might have been passed down through the generation somewhat, but church tradition tells us Moses brings these down in one solid form, and this is where we get it. So this is, they're hearing who their God is in this moment. So let's talk, let's talk about this first audience. Let's talk about these people at Sinai that just got liberated, <clears throat> which we're going to go to Exodus uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 14, okay? Now there arose a new king over Egypt. This is, they're in Egypt right now. This is the beginning of the book of Exodus. They have not been liberated yet. Who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, The people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Okay, so Joseph had been there, and then the Hebrew people developed from the line of Joseph there and his brothers, and you got the different tribes, and they apparently took the be fruitful and multiply very seriously, and they're apparently doing quite well for themselves in Egypt. Okay. Next slide. Uh, Therefore, they set taskmasters. The Egyptians set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. This is the most Jewish thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, the more they're oppressed, the better they do. I love the Jewish people. Go Hebrews. All right. Uh, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. right, side note, just log this one away in the back of your mind. When we get to Babel, mortar and brick, there might be a connection that might resonate with them there. Just saying. Uh, but that's in like seven weeks or something like that. So log that away, put that in the footnotes of your Bible or something. Okay, so this is, this is where they're coming out of. This is, they're in Egypt for 400 years. We're told about 400 years they're in Egypt, and for generations they have been in slavery. They've been enslaved for a long time here, and this is the life that they know. They're working and making, and they're working seven days a week as slaves, and they're being paid to make these bricks. They're, they're, subs, they're subsisting as an oppressed people. Subsisting? Existing? As an oppressed people. Okay? Now, living in Egypt, they're going to pick up parts of the Egyptian culture. 
Now we see this a couple of different times in the story of Exodus. For example, the golden calf. What's the first thing that they turn to in their religious practices? We're going to make an idol because that's the Egyptians. They make these big statues with like goat heads and things, right? So you got to make a you got to you got to make a statue, right? You got to. Micaiah says yes. Got to make a statue. Okay. So they picked up these aspects of the culture, and we can see that they they don't even think Egyptian culture is all that bad necessarily because. When it gets tough in the desert during that honeymoon phase, they, they're like, well, why can't we just go back to Egypt? At least we had this there. Like, apparently it wasn't that bad, or they look at it through some rose-colored glasses, maybe. But they, Egypt had gotten into them. And they, this means they're going to be familiar with the Egyptian creation stories. Okay? So if they're going to be familiar with the Egyptian creation stories then that might change how we look at Genesis 1. Now, I'm not going to dig into Genesis 1 because Rob's doing that next week, but I am going to talk a little bit about these Egyptian creation stories, and we'll see if anything rings a bell in your mind. Because in the Egyptian creation stories, there are many, many similarities to Genesis 1. There's soupy chaos at the beginning, watery chaos. Well, that sounds pretty familiar. There's a dirt mound with Amun-Ra. Now, side note, there is a bunch of creation stories. Each little town had their own variation because their favorite god, they wanted to make them the more important, and, right? And they shift these things around, but there are common threads through a lot of these. Um, it's kind of fun to dig into if you're interested in that. We'll probably talk about these in footnotes a little bit too, just for funsies. Um, but you get this dirt mound or something with one of the gods, but oftentimes it's Amun-Ra sitting above the water, this, above the soupy chaos. Well, that sounds pretty familiar. Uh, there's usually some sort of let there be light moment, okay? There's this concept of a vault in the heavens separating the waters above and the waters below. Well, that should be ringing a bell. That sounds real similar. Um, they, some, somebody usually gathers the land up. One of the gods usually gathers up all the land and creates the land and separates land from water. That usually happens. My favorite little, little side note out of these is humans are made by... Kanum, or Kanum, or something like that. I don't know, K-H-N-U-M is this god. Uh, and he makes them out of clay on his potter's wheel. Well, that sounds not exactly the same, but kind of similar to my recollection of Genesis 1. Now, for example, maybe these creation stories have similarities because they all stem from the actual story. So Rob had a great example when we were talking about this this week of, uh, think of a cosmic game of telephone, so creation happens here, and then the cultures branch off and create their different people groups, and everybody, this was the creation, and everybody tells their oral tradition stories, and as we've played telephone, once you get to the end of the line, it doesn't exactly look the same as, you know, the message doesn't remain the same, right? It shifts, it breaks down over time. And maybe, maybe God is showing up with Moses, and he's saying, here's how it actually happened, like, boom, this is the way it is. And Moses is coming down and setting the record straight with, it, with the Hebrew people. Very well could be. Um, or maybe God is using a familiar creation story to reach his target audience. These people are coming out of Egypt, and they're hearing, they're hearing the Egyptian creation stories, and they know these, and they're familiar with them. They might not believe them or you know, whatever. But God's going to take that creation story and be like, well, here, I'm going to use that, and I'm going to tweak it to tell you who I actually am could be. We don't, we don't really know. 
Um, either way, God's people would be hearing this and it would be ringing bells. It would be resonating with them, either whichever, however it came to be. The God's people are going to be hearing this and it's going to be familiar and then it's going to be slightly different and that's going to tell them something about who their groom is, who God is to them in this relationship. <clears throat> so we're going to see next week when we dive into Genesis 1, that the story, of, the story that God is telling his people is opposite of the cultural narrative that they have been trying, that they've been living out in Egypt, right? They've been slaves in Egypt, making bricks, right? And if I am a slave in Egypt making bricks, and I have to produce these bricks seven days a week, 365 days a year, otherwise I don't get paid, I don't get my rations of food for the day that I can take back to my family, I'm, I'm worthless if I can't produce, this is the narrative that they've been living out. This is their reality. And then we see next week, God shifts this and tells them a slightly different narrative that's going to break this down. It's this, God is telling them who he is and they are learning who he is and God is telling them who they are also. So what I want to do this week is there, there's not really implications of like, well, here's what's implied from that. No. What I want to do is I want to set us up with some questions that we can be thinking about as we go through these next 11 chapters of Genesis. As we are hearing these stories, I want these questions to be in the back of our heads or maybe in the forefront of our minds. That might even be better. Like this is, These are the questions that I want us to be searching for answers for as we are going through these stories in Genesis. And the first one of those is, do you know your groom? This is, this, the Israelites are hearing this story coming from God to determine, like they're, they're learning who this God is that just rescued them from Egypt. They're sitting in Egypt, they're in, in captivity, God comes in and drops all the crazy plagues on it, and then parts the Red Sea, because you know, that's not a giant, like, ooh, that's, that's, that would be crazy. And then there's pillars of fire, and God's hovering on this mountain on Sinai, and there's all this lightning and stuff, like, seems pretty tangible. And I might want to get to know who this deity is that I'm now binding myself to because he seems kind of like a big deal, right? Um, this, is, this is where those Hebrews are at. This is where the people are at. Do you know your groom, though? In what context do you know him? It's our next question. So think of do you know your groom as the big overarching, and then within that, what context do you know him? That's the context that the Hebrews have, right? They're coming out of this Egyptian context, okay? And this is how they know their deities in the Egyptian context. And there's, there's the oral stuff that's been passed down through the generations about the God of Abraham. Even if they're not worshiping the Egyptian gods, Egypt got into them. No matter what culture you live in, it will affect you. Like, look around, we've picked up aspects of our culture. Now, good news is they've picked up aspects from us too. It's, it's a two-way street. It's not all bad. But we need to be aware of this. Culture wants us, they want to define who God is for you. Culture is always going to try to define who God is for you. And culture also wants to define who God says you are. These are things that culture is going to try to do to us. And in order to know our groom, we have to say, no, culture doesn't get to define those. The Egyptian culture didn't get to define those. God defines those. God says who he is. 
God tells us who we are, right? Because when we get it from culture, it's an incomplete and it's inaccurate. So how have you, or what context do you know him in? What context do you know him in? What context does Logan bring into his understanding of God? What sort of false narratives have I picked up? Or what sort of good narratives, maybe? Maybe, maybe it's not bad. Maybe I got a pretty clear picture of him. Could be. Probably not. It's me. It's a hot mess, probably. I probably bring some baggage into this. The context of me knowing my groom, right? As the bride of Christ, I need to know God in this, in this way. Then the next question is, what does God actually say about you? Because I need to know God, and then I need to know who God says I am. Okay? This is, this is the, Egypt has told those people that their worth is only defined by what they produce. That doesn't sound like today at all. That's sarcasm. It sounds a lot like today. There's, there's a lot of that narrative running around. You're only worth what you can produce, right? You're only worth what your salary is. Determines your worth in society. Like, that's no good. Hmm. And I'm using a lot of Genesis 1 imagery here. There's going to be more of these throughout, but Genesis 1 is the first one we're going to come to. So I figured we'd queue you up for a hit it out of the park next week, right? Because we need, it's, it's going to take time to wrestle through these. Okay? I, I've heard these stories over and over and over again. Every single time I'm getting more out of it. I'm going deeper into them. Um, so we're going we're gonna to actually move into our time of communion here in just a minute. So, Rob, are you passing it out? Whoever's, whoever's passing out communion can go back and start getting that ready. Um, as I go, I'm gonna, I got one more little thing, one more little tidbit here to, uh, to get us through. So as you're, as you're reading these stories, keep these questions in mind. Maybe, maybe write them down on a sticky note and slap them in your, in your Bible and use that as the bookmark as we're reading through. So as we're reading through Genesis 1 this week, be thinking, do I know my groom? What do I know? Who, who is God to me in this? And what is God telling me through Genesis 1 about who he is? Okay. And last here, I want, as we're going through Genesis, as we're reading and we're hearing and we're ingesting and imbibing these stories, I want us to hear them with fresh ears. Because it's really easy I, if this is your first time hearing Genesis, which I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb, it's probably not our first time hearing the story of Genesis. Most of us in this room, we've probably heard these stories. I mean, I've heard these stories so many times, hundreds if not thousands of times of people reading them and, and telling me them and teaching on them. Just over there. Uh, these stories are super familiar, and it's really easy for us, we've talked about the lullaby effect, right, to just kind of Oh yeah, no, I know that. Well, no. Let's put ourselves in the perspective of a people coming out and getting to know their God for the first time and hearing these stories with fresh ears because we're going to be affected by them differently. We need to put ourselves into this mindset of, oh man, this is the first time I'm hearing this. What am I hearing? And it requires some effort. When we do this, God shows up and does work. So I've been, I've been going through Genesis, prepping for this series, and to be honest, Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4, even just Genesis 1, 
has been filleting me over and over every time I go through this thing. Some of you might know I have some issues with trusting people. I don't like trusting people. I don't like telling people that I don't trust people. So that's baby steps, making progress here. I don't like being vulnerable. Like this, I'm I'm a slight workaholic. So this whole production thing that the Israelites, like as I'm prepping this this week, I'm like, this sucks. This is horrible. Why? Why, God? Why? Right? This is, this is hitting me. This is hitting me on a very, very real level. And when we put this fresh perspective, when we look at these stories, not just reading through them and then, oh, yeah, nope, nope, I know the story and I know these cool, fun facts about them, because you can do that and it's fine, but God's not actually hitting you with it. Like, if you're not going to let God affect you through these stories, then you're just, you just know Bible trivia which is cool, but letting God like, do some work on your heart is cooler. It's not comfortable. You can testify to that. It's not comfortable, but it's good. So as we're going through Genesis, let God show up in that for you. That's my challenge for you in this. Keep these questions in mind and see where God can come and meet you in this. So we're going to move into communion. And we celebrate this every week. Um, we've got an open table, so uh, join us if you're a follower of Christ. We take this all together. But it's, it's, reminding of, it's reminding us of this covenant. And we've talked about this covenant that God was creating with his people at Sinai. And Jesus is creating a new covenant with us at communion. This is to tell us who he is to us. This is furthering this story, bringing it along a little further of saying, this is who our groom is. This is the God that loves us so much that he would send his son to sacrifice for us. This is what we're remembering when we take communion. That's pretty beautiful. So on the night that, uh, that Jesus was betrayed, um, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's remember him. God, I thank you for these stories that you've given us that tell us who you are. That you would love us so much that you would constantly pursue us in this, God. That you would liberate us from our, our oppression. You would bring those, the Hebrews, out of Egypt to show them who you are. To take us in as your own to partner with us. Man, I'm, I'm excited for this series, God. I'm excited to see you show up and teach us. I'm excited to see you show up and change things in our lives. Um, God, as we move through the rest of this service, help us to feel your presence in this. Pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and share if you enjoyed this message. 
Mission Ridge is a new church in Missoula, Montana. If you're in the Missoula area, we would love to have you join us for worship on a Sunday. For more information about Mission Ridge, connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or online at missionridge.church. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can give securely online at missionridge.church forward slash give. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you have a blessed week. We'll catch you on the flip side.